It's good to be with you tonight and to have spent the weekend with you. Appreciate you having me. It's been a delight. You'd uh, turn open to the book of Hebrews uh, this evening. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. There's love when churches get together, and uh, I'm thankful that you are doing that here in the Kalamazoo area across denominational lines, and uh, even have a, uh, a foreign Gentile like me here from the PCA for this weekend. I appreciate it, uh, and it's just been a delight to be with you. Uh, what I've especially enjoyed is uh, the conference all weekend, is that uh, you've been so receptive to the Word, and... Uh, it's just been encouraging to have conversations afterwards and uh, hear how much you love the Word and love the Lord. So it's sweet to close out this weekend with you. And tonight we're going to do that from Hebrews chapter 3 and look at verses seventeen or 7 through 19. And let's pray before we open God's Word together this evening. Our Father, we are thankful. That you are a God who reveals yourself to us. We're thankful that you have given us this word, that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We would pray that even as we close out this Lord's Day, that we would find that your word is searching us. That you are having your way with each of us as only you can. So we pray that your spirit would attend to the word. And that when we leave this place, that we would know that we have heard from you, the living God. May it shape us and mold us. May it inform us at the very beginning of our week. And as we go into our week, for your praise and glory. In Christ's name, amen. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. This is the holy inerrant, sufficient Word of God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, that exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened, by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For those who were, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? 
Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? With whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. But the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. This is a little bit of an odd text for a guest preacher to preach. Uh, It's a hard text, uh, not the easiest of texts, not the friendliest of texts. Um, But when I was contacted by uh, Pastor Bill and Pastor Jonathan about doing this conference this weekend and saying, okay, how about these three talks, and then what do you want to preach morning, evening to close out uh, the weekend? Uh, You know, much of what we have done this weekend, for those of you that were in attendance, was we were looking at what it's like to live in a world that is becoming more challenging to live in as a Christian in the Western world. And, And we were looking at that, fact that we are pilgrims walking through this world, going from here to there, to that celestial city, to the heaven, and to be with our Christ. And I think often what happens in the midst of changing times like this is that you and I feel the pressures of the world changing around us and all of it coming in upon us and the pressure. And we think, think the great enemy is out there. But what the scriptures are consistent about is that it's true that there are adversaries out there and there are dangers out there and there are things that are pressuring and coming to bear upon us from out there. But the thing that the scriptures are continually warning you and I about is that the greatest enemy is not out there, but in here. And it's the one that I least often pay attention to. And it's sin as it grips my heart and has its way with me. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is addressing here in These verses, and I hope to make the connection with what we're doing this weekend or what we've been doing. As you read through the book of Hebrews and you go through the book of Hebrews, you will see different warnings throughout the book of Hebrews. And these are real warnings, and we want to heed these warnings as we go through the book of Hebrews. It's a most scholars think it was a sermon that was in written form, and he is giving these warnings to his listeners as they are hearing this sermon. And yet, let me say at the very beginning, before we even get into the warning that he is giving us in this text, that those who are in Christ, I want to be very clear, those who are in Christ are eternally secure in Christ. Let's make that very clear. The Son of God came into this world 
and lived a completely righteous life and he died a perfect death and the blood that he shed for those that he saved secures them not just in the moment but for all of eternity. They cannot be lost. Jesus himself makes this very clear when he says, I know my own and my own know me even as I know the Father and the Father knows me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands I and the father are one he could not be more clear nothing and no one can overpower him and the father and those that are his are in the palm of his hand They can't be snatched out. And yet, it's clear that you and I are to heed these warnings. We're to make sure that we continue to pursue Christ even as we trust Him to hold us. Those that He preserves are those that persevere. Those two things go hand in hand. C.S. Lewis said it well when he wrote this in Mere Christianity about these wake-up calls and not to take things for granted. He said, we have to be continually reminded of what we believe. If you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? And after 20 years of pastoring, I can tell you categorically without reserve that it's not even a fair comparison. That those who claim the name of Christ and end up turning their back on Christ and running from Christ tend to just drift away. And they drift away by just imbibing sin and allowing us what the writer of Hebrews is going to say here, hardening their hearts. So that's what we're going to look at this evening. The author gives us a very direct warning here. He gives it from Psalm 95. He begins by quoting it. This was a very familiar text for any Jew, because Psalm 95 was the psalm that they would read the call to worship from every Sabbath evening in the synagogue. And in that psalm, we find this stark warning, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What rebellion? Well, of course, the rebellion that the writer is recalling is when the people of Israel have been led out of bondage in Egypt, that generation that had been redeemed from Egypt, and then they, once they are redeemed, begin to complain. And he immediately has in mind, especially Exodus 16 and 17 and Numbers 14 and 20. You'll remember that the nation of Israel had been in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. 
For 400 years, mothers and fathers in Israel had told their children, and mothers and fathers then of that generation told their children, and on for generation upon generation upon generation, as they were in bondage and slavery, keep hoping in God. He will send a Redeemer. And then finally, after 400 years of bondage, God sends a Redeemer in the person of Moses. And Moses comes down to Egypt and he leads the nation out of Egypt. An incredible act of God's free mercy and grace and kindness. And he leads them out and we're told that there were 600,000 men of Israel that he led out. Many scholars think, well, if there were 600,000 men, then there were probably close to a million men, women, and children that were led out of Egypt in the Exodus. These million-plus Jews who had experienced the ten plagues that God had brought upon the nation of Egypt, they had seen and watched as frogs and lice and hail and locusts had consumed. They observed darkness cover the entire land. They experienced firsthand the night of the Passover as God destroyed the firstborn of Egypt and spared their own sons. They witnessed as the, the Nile turned to blood and they watched as He separated the Red Sea and they themselves with their own two feet walked across on dry ground and they watched as the Egyptian army went in and God dashed them to pieces. They experienced all of that. Experienced what none of their forefathers had experienced for 400 plus years. As God says in verse 9, these Jews saw my works for 40 years. I experienced what none other had. And as the psalmist tells us and the writer quotes in verse 9, they still harden their hearts against this merciful God. What they experienced was not enough. And they were in the wilderness immediately. After in that time of testing, as he says in verse 8, they went, as he says in verse 10, astray in their hearts. They're no sooner out of Egypt than they begin complaining. We find them in Exodus 16 grumbling against Moses and Aaron and Miriam, and they will say, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And they complain time and time again, and it finally reaches its climax, doesn't it? When they are on the banks of the Jordan River, ready to be led into the promised land, and they see that the people are too numerous, and they are too big, and they complain, and they refuse to go in. Complaint has led to hardening. As one author said, the Hebrews writer's concern is this, that what happened nationally in the Old Covenant can so easily happen individually today. And that's the concern of the writer. As you and I today, 
Look at the disastrous results of their going astray. Verse 11. They shall not enter my rest. Of the million plus Jews led out of Egypt, two, two, walked into the promised land. The connection the writer is making is that the church today is in the wilderness. We've been talking about that in various ways over this weekend, that we have been set free as the people of God from bondage and slavery, not in Egypt, but something much more significant, a sin and a death and a hell and from our adversary, we've been set free. But we're not yet home. We haven't yet reached that promised land. We haven't had all of those promises consummated yet and brought to us. We aren't yet home. And so we're in this wilderness. And we are continuing in this wilderness in faith as the Jews were called to walk in faith until their faith became sight, until our faith becomes sight. And so there is a testing of that faith. And we want to enter that rest. This is the warning of the writer of Hebrews. Look, your faith is being tested and you want to enter that rest. So two points this evening as we consider the danger of hardening. Two points from the text. And before you get too excited, seven applications. So two points with seven applications. First, notice it's not enough to start well. It's not enough to start well. You must finish well. The Israelites were fair-weather believers. God was taking them out of Egypt. They believed. But when the trials began to come in the wilderness, despite everything that they had experienced, they crumbled into unbelief. Complaint seized a hold of them, as the writer says in verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. It almost seems unbelievable. Unbelievable after all that they had experienced. That they're now marked by unbelief. As one preacher said about this reality, he said, the unbelief of God's people is even more amazing than belief. After all that they had experienced. And yet we see it time and time again. Some start out so well. They appear to have placed their faith in Christ. They begin to go through a time of testing in life. All of a sudden it disappears. They crumble. Don't just begin well. You have to finish well. How? Or second point. Keep your heart with all diligence. Do you notice how often he speaks about the heart just in these few verses? How he's directing you over and over to the heart. Verse 9, do not harden your hearts. 
Verse 10, he diagnoses the problem as they always go astray in their hearts. He warns in verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. The danger zone, there are flashing lights, he's surrounding it. And he's saying, look, the danger zone that you have to be concerned about is the heart. The heart is the heart of the matter. Safeguard your heart. Keep your heart. Scripture, the heart can refer to the mind. It can refer to the affections. It can refer to the will. It it refers to the inner core of man or woman. that, That which is inside and makes us what we are. Guard the heart. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Jesus said our sins come from within, out of the heart of man, Mark 7.21. Our words, our thoughts and actions are but fruit produced by that root. And the great sin, the greatest of sins, the greatest malady and sickness destroying human life is the sin of unbelief. It's unbelief that takes hold. As John Owen said, the root of all backsliding, whether it is gradual or total, lies in unbelief. Keep your heart from unbelief. Keep your heart. Do not harden. In verse 8, it gives a good picture of the warning he's offering to us in this text. The heart solidifying, becoming firm in unbelief. When I was a a child, I used to love to go into my grandparents' backyard. They they had this this slab of concrete in their backyard. And I used to love to go out to that because in that slab of concrete were, were two impressions. And so I would go out there as a four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, and, and the one impression was of my mom when she was five years old and her hand in the concrete. And next to it was her pet dog Coco's paw and his imprint in the concrete. And I used to go and love to put my little four- or five-year-old hand in the space that had been my mom's hand when she was four or five years old. But what I really wanted to do is I wanted to impress my hand next to her hand. Or better yet, in between hers and Coco's paw. That's what I wanted to do. But you can't. It's already been hardened. It will take no more impression. This is the concern of the writer of Hebrews. Is he saying as you entertain sin and continue to entertain sin that... It begins to harden the heart where the Spirit makes no more, can make no more impression upon that heart. Just solidifies. Listen, we want to be clear on this. The best of Christians sin. The best Christians are sinners. I remember being young in the faith and when I first came to saving faith in Christ and thinking that
that as I mature in the Christian life, that I'm going to become less and less of a sinner. And you realize that as you mature in Christ, that the reality is, is that it's not necessarily that you become less and less a sinner. You become more and more aware of your sin and the depth of your sin. The things that I would have never counted as sin before, I count as sin now. The things I didn't understand, the depth of that sin that I wrestled with before, I understand the depth of it even more now. And it's one of the great mercies of God that He doesn't allow us to see all of our sins or all the depth of our sin at the outset, and it's by degrees, because we would be undone. But this is why Paul can get to a place where he says, I am chief among sinners. Because he looks at himself as he's progressing in the Christian life and he sees his own sin and he knows the depth of his own sin more than he knows anyone else's. And so he can look around a congregation like this and he can say, I am the chiefest sinner in this room. Paul was a great sinner. Peter was a great sinner. David was a great sinner. The best of Christians are great sinners. But what's the difference? That when there is conviction of sin in a great Christian, in a mature Christian, in a Christian that is walking in the light, when there is conviction of sin, you turn from that sin and you turn to Christ in repentance. There's confession. danger of our hearts becoming harder and harder is something that none of us want to entertain. There have been people over the years I've observed dive headlong into sin, people who've claimed the name of Christ, but they've refused to turn from their sin when confronted. I think especially about a number of people as a pastor, you know, I've approached them and see the sin that has been in their life and you know, graciously attempt to confront them in that sin and they're unwilling to give it up. It's just it's too much of a treasure. Maybe it's drunkenness. Maybe it is that adulterous affair. Maybe it is leaving their spouse because they think they are going to be so much more happy having been divorced and you're calling them to repentance and they say they're just unwilling to give this up. And a handful of times I've said, to those individuals, I've said, oh, I'm so concerned for you because there are only two possible outcomes here. And they're both incredibly painful. The one is that the Lord will pursue you. And in pursuing you, what he will have to do to discipline you, to bring you back from this place of hardness is going to be severe. But the second is even worse. Is if he doesn't pursue you. And you're just left to the hardness of your heart. Sin has an agenda. We so often play with it and we trifle with it and we wink at it. It was praying this as I was driving to Kalamazoo this morning, thinking, oh, I'm getting ready to preach this this evening, and thinking, oh, 
Jason, what sins is it that you're, you're tolerating right now in your own breast and in your own mind and in your own soul that you're winking at and you're tolerating and you're not being quick to repent of and quick to turn from and quick to confess? We so easily do that. He refers to it in verse 13, what sin is. He calls it the deceitfulness of sin. And that word deceitfulness, it has the idea of steering us out of the right way. It has one aim. Sin has one aim for you. And that is to steer you out of the right way. It wants to keep you from finishing your race. It wants to keep you from the promise of that rest. That's its aim. It's not something to be played with. It's not something to be tolerated. Something to kill. It's your enemy. It's my enemy. Where he says in verse 19, unable to enter because of unbelief. Hold fast, he is encouraging us. Hold fast to our original confidence or faith firm to the end, so we enter this heavenly rest. So seven encouragements for you to help safeguard you from hardening quickly. First, I've said it a few times this weekend, be known. Be known. You want people in your life Who know you. Who know what you're wrestling with. What sins you are inclined to play with. I want to read you an extended quote. And there's a reason for it. It's a good quote. I want you to listen to this. Christians can develop habits of behavior that can turn into addictions and lead into temptation and sin. We all know of Christians who even in their mature Christian experience became addicted to alcohol or to unhelpful online activities. We wish we could be like Joseph in every situation of temptation and flee the scene saying, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Often, however, we give in. And like Peter denying Jesus, we do the very thing we insisted we would never do. When we do find ourselves despairing of our current inability to win the battle with sin, we need to seek help from God, from Christian friends, and even from secular agencies who can help people who have developed unhealthy patterns of living. The one thing we must not do is ignore the very means and channels which God Himself has provided for our growth and grace. Keep praying. Keep listening to the preaching of the word. Keep reading the Bible. These are the means which will enable us, whatever our personal failings, to keep our eyes on Jesus, our only hope. It's a good word. Keep your eyes on Jesus. The man who wrote those words, only two years after he wrote those words, man that was a wonderful theologian, an incredible preacher, 
the greatest leader's entire denomination. It's found out just two years after he wrote those words that for decades he had been involved in serial adulterous relationships and abuse, and he committed suicide. How do you write that when you're doing that? It's as the writer says, the deceitfulness of sin. It just deceives. It just wants to get you off that path. And stymie your focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Be known. I was reading articles about this man after... So I had followed him and benefited from his ministry and read many of his books and read a number of articles following his death in which people said over and over almost the exact same thing. Nobody really knew him. We didn't know him. Be known. Your sin will deceive you. Be known. So other people can speak into your life. One of the ways the writer of Hebrews encouraged our resisting sin is to lean upon one another in the church. He says that exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You are in an epic war with the prince of the power of the air and his demonic forces and he wants you. And the Lord Jesus has not only put his angelic host at your behest, but he has surrounded you with brothers and sisters in Christ to walk through this life with, to fight the good fight with, that are there to help you be known. Be vulnerable enough to be known. Trust enough to be known. Second, be on guard. I have a friend who ends his prayers this way. It caught me after listening to him pray. And well, Jonathan missed him tonight. Convicts. Uh, he, he, he ends every one of his prayers the same way. And it struck me years ago listening to him. He will end every prayer and he will say, Lord, keep me from sin and from sinning. That's a good prayer. Good way to end a prayer. Be on guard. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, be watchful. Be on guard. Third, be aware. Be aware of sin in your own life. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the Apostle John says. As Martin Luther famously said, I am simulustus et peccator. That is, at the same time, justified yet a sinner. As we progress in this life, we want to be more and more sensitive to remaining sin in our life. Not to heap guilt upon ourselves. You've been set free from your guilt in the Lord Jesus Christ. He bore that upon the cross. If you are carrying around guilt, then you're saying His death upon the cross was somehow insufficient. No, we want to become more and more of aware of our sins so that we may turn from it and turn to Him so that we might become more like the one we love. So that we might be prepared more and more for the glory that we are getting ready to walk into. 
And so we want to be more aware. So much of falling into greater depths of sin and a hardening of the heart is simply a lack of spiritual sensitivity. So be aware. Fourth, be quick. Be quick to repent. When you are aware of sin, quickly turn from it and turn to Christ. Love, and often think about it when the angel came to Joseph and told him that he was going to have a son. And he said to Joseph, you shall name him Jesus. He said, you shall name him Jesus because he shall be the savior of his people. He shall save them from their sins. He's a savior of sinners. He knows you're a sinner. He knew you were a sinner. He's not surprised that you're a sinner. When you find yourself in sin, you quickly run to him. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He draws near to sinners and bids sinners to draw near to him. It's one of my favorite accounts there at the end of the Gospel of John. You remember when Peter, who had confessed earlier in the book that he would never deny the Lord Jesus. And Jesus said, you're going to deny me, Peter, three times. Oh, not I, Jesus. I wouldn't do that. And then, of course, Peter denies Jesus three times. And then you have the resurrected Jesus that appears on the beach. And Peter is out there in the boat and he sees the Lord Jesus in his resurrected body. John sees him, tells Peter, Peter, lovable Peter, always zealous Peter. He jumps into the water and he swims to the beach and he runs up to Jesus. And then you have this beautiful scene where Jesus and Peter are walking on the beach. And Jesus will say to Peter, Peter, do you love me? What a question, but a right question. And Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. He asks him a second time, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Jesus asks him a third time, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you and feed my sheep. Why is it he leads him through this threefold testimony? Because he's seeking to heap guilt upon Peter and weigh him down and remind him of his threefold denial? No, because he knows Peter has been trapped by that threefold denial. And the Lord Jesus is saying to him in a very clear way, Look, I have restored you. Here is a threefold beyond threefold forgiveness. You have been forgiven, Peter. You have not lost your ministry. You haven't lost your relationship with me. Go out and do what I have commanded you to do. He is a gracious Savior. The bruised reed, he doesn't break. The flickering flame, he doesn't quench. He knows you're a sinner. So when you find yourself in sin, you quickly. 
quickly. Return to him. Fifth, be persistent. Be persistently growing in your faith. None of us have arrived in Christ. As long as you have breath in this world, you are to be growing in Christ. You never matriculate from the school of Christ. And so you're continually seeking to grow in your understanding and your love and your conformity to the one who bought you. Because you love him. So you keep seeking after him. The greatest way to fight hardness of heart is you replace it by seeking your savior. You fall more in love with him, sin becomes more detestable. The more you love Him, the more you're grieved by your sin. The more you're seeking Him, the less time, the less energy, the less you want to seek sin in this world. Keep growing. Sixth, be thankful. So much of the Christian life and safeguarding our hearts is bathing our lives with the spirit of thanksgiving. Psalm 95, which this passage comes from, it begins with, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. You have reason to be thankful. We of all people on the face of the earth have reason to be thankful. Say, how could the... The Jews, after everything that they experienced, have hardness of heart. What they experience is nothing compared to what you and I have experienced. Let us be thankful. We have seen time after time God's provision of grace and mercy and His presence. I often think the Christian life is to be, as it were, kind of a, a life that is a field that's littered with all kinds of Ebenezer stones where I can say, ah, I remember there where he provided for me. I remember there where he comforted me. I remember there where he brought me forth. And I remember there where he met me in mercy. And then there's this great big Ebenezer stone that sits in the middle and it's the cross. He's provided everything for me. Be thankful. No matter what trials we're going through, no matter what hardships, John Flavel has this wonderful quote when he, in his book about keeping the heart, and he says this, if you could see how God in his secret counsel has exactly laid the whole plan of your salvation, even the smallest means and circumstances, could you but discern the admirable harmony of divine dispensations, their mutual relations, together with the general respect they all have to the last end, had you the liberty to make your own choice, you would of all conditions in the world choose that in which you now are. You wouldn't change a thing. If you could see as he sees, you wouldn't change a thing. God is for you. He's for you. And He's working all things together for your good. 
be thankful. Finally, be focused on heaven to come. And this brings us full circle this weekend. Keep going. Heaven is just over the horizon. Keep going. Some of you are going to reach it there before others of us. But it's still just over the horizon. Keep going. Whatever you suffer, whatever loss, whatever you have to give up in this life, there's not one regret you will have when you get there. And it's just over the horizon. So you keep on. As the writer says here, hold to your original confidence firm to the end. If you allow me, I just want to do this with you. I remind you of what it is that awaits you if you just hold on till the end. I think one of the most beautiful pictures that we have in the scriptures from Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor 
and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. You don't want to miss that. You don't want to miss that. Sin is never worth it. You want to finish your pilgrimage. You want to make your way home to that celestial city. Continue to hold fast to the confession you first made. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you have given such a great salvation to us in the person of your Son. And how we long for that day when we shall gaze upon your glory in the face of our Savior. And our faith shall become sight. you help us to persevere to the very end, to hold fast to the confession that we have made, and to keep our eyes fixed upon Christ in heaven to come. And if there are any of us here tonight where there is hardness of heart or where there is deadness of heart, We pray that by the power of your Spirit that you would make them soft hearts. That you would bring us to the foot of the cross. And that we would find that we are gazing upon the beauty and the loveliness of our Savior. Now and forevermore. I thank you for being such a gracious God to such sinners. And we pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen.